One of my greatest weaknesses is my memory. Um, I am the stereotypical father that's, I only have two kids, but I have to go through Olivia, Myra, Stacy, Linda, Denny. I just, just start throwing names out there until I get to the right one. I, I'm not fantastic with faces. Um, it's just one of those joys of being John Muffler. I don't have a great memory. Unless it's tragic, embarrassing, or ridiculous, and for some reason, my mind's like, yeah, we'll keep on to that one. Let's put it right there, that little nugget of joy. Um, one, of my, one of my earliest memories uh, of being a kid, and it, it really is kind of strange and very embarrassing, is I remember the very first time I had a spiritual conversation. I remember the very first time I talked to God. Unfortunately, it was by myself on my bike. I grew up in Lake St. Louis, which is a suburb of, uh, of St. Louis. It just happened to have a lake. Very cool name, Lake St. Louis. Um, I, I grew up in the suburbs on a cul-de-sac where everybody would wear their black socks and mow their lawns at 9 a.m. on Saturday, just like everybody else mowed their lawns at 9 a.m. on Saturday. It was peaceful. It was safe. I remember one summer, I was maybe eight, nine, like that. I didn't have any place to go, didn't have any plans that day, and I just was riding my bike in the cul-de-sac, just doing circles. And I started thinking to myself, and I started talking out loud, who are you? What are you? Now, I didn't have a religious background, never went to church. Uh, faith wasn't really a part of my, uh, my family growing up, and so I was really starting at chapter one. I had no concept, but I, for some reason, on this bike, going around in circles, I just started talking. I'm like, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're about. I don't even know if you exist. Are you male? Are you female? Are you the flying spaghetti monster? I have no concept. I have no idea who God was. And I asked that question. I said, who are you? Do you like me? Do you not like me? Did I do something right? Did I do something wrong? I was simply asking the question, God, who are you? I have no idea. Um, if you're anything like me, at one point in your life, you've asked the hard question, who is this Jesus? And is the answer worthwhile enough that changes my life? Now, if you've been to church for a year or a decade, if this is your very first time, welcome. We're glad to have you. It's always wonderful to have new, uh, new visitors, new faces. Um, but probably, since you're here, I'm making the assumption on a Sunday morning, you are here and you've heard of the name Jesus before. You have some kind of background. You have some kind of emotional attachment, positive, negative, or somewhere in between. You have asked yourself the question, who is this Jesus? Here in Bloomington, we have a lot of people that are very unsure who Jesus is. Some say he was a historical figure that gained popularity because of his teachings. You've heard this before, maybe, that Jesus was a good man who had positive things to say. If you read scripture, if you read historically, um, Jesus was a very positive human being. He believed in forgiveness. He believed in love. He believed in taking care of one another. These are things that most of us can get behind. Most of us look at that and say, forgiveness, I like to be forgiven. Loved, I like to be loved. These are things that we can look back and say, yeah, maybe he was a good teacher. Some say uh, that he was a prophet of God that had a message for God, uh, from God to his people, that he came to this earth and did amazing things, and he had the backing of God, the backing of the Holy Spirit. The things that he said and did weren't just like a good man, that weren't just nice and kind and polite, but he did 
wonders, miracles that pointed to God. Some would say um, that he was God in flesh that walked with his creation to bring forgiveness. Some would look at him and say, he's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is God in flesh. Pop culture says that uh, Jesus is mainly just a myth and should be openly mocked. Um, Television show called Family Guy. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying it's out there. Every time Jesus is on that show that I've seen, um, they portray him as a second-rate illusionist. Kind of a, a guy to pick on and make fun of. That, that his notoriety just became, um, over years and years and years, he really was just kind of some goober that happened to get popular. Uh, Bones, my wife and I love watching Bones. Are you into that? Um, I, I enjoy that show. There's, uh, there's science, there's mystery, uh, and the, the main dude has cool hair. I'm just saying. Um, but she mocks oh, Bones, uh, writes off Jesus as just one of the many society's weaknesses. She looks at, at any time they run into somebody of faith or that believes in Jesus or believes in a higher power, they basically just write them off as some Neanderthal knuckle-dragging idiot. Pop culture definitely doesn't have a positive thing about, positive things about uh, Jesus. Our pluralistic society says that he, Jesus, is just one way to God and that all the ways should be respected equally so not to hurt feelings. There are many paths to God and we should all respect one another. Now listen, I am very thankful to live in this country. We have the right we have the privilege, we have the freedom to come to church, we have the freedom to follow after Jesus Christ, we have the freedom to ask questions about faith. I am grateful and thankful for hundreds of years of men and women sacrificing so that we have this freedom. But the opposite side of that coin is this. Well, nobody's more important than the others, we should all respect and love and kind and, and be Nice. This pluralistic society that there is many ways to God and that we need to respect and love everyone. And I'm all about respect and love. But at the same time, who do we say Jesus is? And that's the question I want to bring before you guys this morning. That's the, the conversation I want to have. Uh, we are in this Game Changer series. We're going to continue it today by looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of those he forever transformed. If you'd like to, uh, we'll be hanging out in Luke chapter 9 for the next few minutes. So if you would like to bust out your paper Bibles, old school is the best school sometimes, if you want to get out your iPads or your tablets or your phones. Remember, it is a fantastic privilege to have Scripture in your pocket. It's free. There are lots of opportunities to have the Bible on your electronic devices. I encourage you to do that if you'd like to do that. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Even in the time of Jesus, when he was walking around in his ministry, people were asking, who is he, who is this man? We'll be exploring uh, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or feeding the multitude this morning in Luke chapter 1. So if you're there, you're there. Good job. Um, we find Jesus here in Luke chapter 1, um, basically showing his discipleship model. After spending a good deal of time with his followers, preaching, teaching, and pointing the way to the kingdom of God, he equips these disciples and sends them out two by two. Now, I love this, and, and this is a great model for us. Anytime that there is somebody that we can disciple, if there is anybody that we can train or equip, um, we have the privilege of having um, interns here all the time in student ministries, uh, and we, we use this model. We use the model, I do and you watch. 
As in, I've got maybe a little more experience in this area, so I want you to just come with me. Come to an event, come to a program, listen to this, I'll walk you through this, but I'll do it and you watch. And that's what we see uh, Jesus doing with the disciples. He was preaching, he was healing, he was doing miraculous wonders to point the way to the kingdom of heaven. The next is we do it together. I love this area. I remember a couple guys in my life that took me under their wing and helped me in ministry, helped me in a lot of things. And I remember if I had to do it by myself, I probably would have never done it. But because of these guys, these, these men and women in my past who lifted me up and helped me in this process, I'm here today. And the next step is what I, is what I love is you do and I watch. You teach. You preach. You lead this. You have this hard conversation with a parent, and I'll be right there with you. And this is where we see Jesus. He has spent time and energy with these disciples. He's equipped them, and now he says, go. Leave. Two by two, go into the countryside. Teach, preach, and heal. Luke 9, 1 through 2 says this. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Set them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They, were witnessed, uh, they witnessed Jesus heal a man with leprosy. The centurion's servant was healed from miles away. They watched Jesus calm a storm. They watched Jesus walk on water. They witnessed Jesus heal a paralyzed man. These are some of the miracles they witnessed before they were sent out. Jesus equipped them, and they walked out there, and they did it. Luke 9, 7 through 9, a little bit farther down, we now have the question. Now Herod, hearing that these, these men, two by two, are out in the countryside doing amazing things, bringing glory to God, has heard about this Jesus, who is causing quite the ruckus wherever he goes, starts to uh, ask this question. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on. He was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others say Elijah had appeared, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago, that had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John, so who is this that I hear such things about? Who is this Jesus? And he wanted to try to see him. That was probably not for tea or coffee and happiness. He was probably wanting to get rid of Jesus. So here it is. He asks the questions that the crowds asked. He was asking the questions that the disciples were asking. He was asking the question that maybe even Jesus' family was asking is, who's Jesus? How? What? He's doing crazy, amazing things. How is this happening? And so the three things that come back to him and say, okay, wait a minute. Herod's perplexed by asking the question everybody else is asking. Herod beheaded John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Herod had some words, had a couple disagreements. John lost his head over it. Herod killed him. So he's asking the question now, I probably can't be John the Baptist. I, I kind of murdered that guy. Can't be him. Elijah uh, was another thought. Uh, Elijah didn't die, and there was tradition uh, of expectation that he would come back before the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord just basically means when history is wrapped up and God comes back and everything's done. And so people are saying, well, maybe this is Elijah coming back. And this really is the end times. Maybe this is when God's coming back. The other thought was that Jesus' message and miracles were so similar to the prophets of old. Now, a long time ago, uh, to the people of Israel, God would send messengers, prophets, to walk up and say, be reminded that God is king, that God loves you, that God is jealous. Don't follow after any other gods. Hey, don't run after this country because, man, they're no good for you. And the reality is most of those prophets died at the hands of God's own people. 
So there was pretty good confusion. Herod, the crowds, his disciples, everyone was basically asking the question, who is this Jesus? What is he about? This is amazing. Luke 9, 10 through 17 um, uh, starts the the feeding of the 5,000. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all they had done. Then he took them aside, withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethesda. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Now, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see a pattern. We see Jesus walking into a town, into a synagogue, into a group of people, into a marketplace, and start preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus, at the beginning of the ministry, would seek people out. He went to them. And here we have a line in the sand that Luke kind of says, things flip. From now on, from the account of Luke, we basically see Jesus not going to people, but crowds of people coming to him. He can't be alone. He can't have five minutes apiece of talking to his disciples, praying, having a meal. And so he kind of starts retreating a little bit. So it flips. It goes from him to the people, to the people to him. But he has compassion on them. He sees them. He heals them. He speaks to them. And 12, 13, 14 says this, Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they could go to the surrounding villages and countrysides and find food and lodging. Because there was a remote place there, uh, he replied, you give them something to eat. Jesus looked at his disciples, and this is what he said, you, 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 give them something to eat. They answered, the disciples answered, we have only five loaves of bread, two fish. Unless we go buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Here we go. This miracle was found in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is a big deal. This is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, He looks at his disciples. His disciples walk up to Jesus with a problem. Hey, these people, we're in a desolated place. We're in the desert. There is nothing around. There's there's nothing for them to eat or drink or sleep. And now, Scripture records about 5,000 men. Unfortunately, they didn't count women or children. Sorry. It's not me, that was that. Um, but the reality is we're talking about eight to 10,000 people most likely was, uh, was being fed by Jesus. Um, they find themselves in a remote place, a, uh, a desert place with no food, no water, and Jesus' first reaction to this problem is, I've equipped you. I've trained you. You've watched me. I've given you the ability to, to do amazing things, to heal people, to cast out demons. You feed them. And like a lot of us and myself, sometimes when, when push comes to shove, I go, ah, but you're kind of the expert here. I don't know what I'm doing. How about you deal with it? And he says, fine, have everybody sit. And 15, 16, 17, the disciples did so, and they had everyone sit down. Taking the five loaves, the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces, that were left over. Jesus feeds all of them. 8, 10, 12,000 men, women, and children. This meal um, is a reminder for us. Let's, real quick, let me paint it like this. God feeding his people in the desert with food that he just gives them. Does that remind you of anything? Moses. The Israelites are coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery. They find themselves, millions of people, coming out of Egypt. They are in the middle of the desert, have nothing to drink, nothing to eat, and they cry out to God and say, well, well thanks for getting us out of Egypt. Now we're just going to start to death and die. And God brings manna. Now, this is one of those things in Scripture that's a mystery to me. I don't get it. 
food falling from the sky. I like Kroger. I can just go to Kroger. No worries. This would kind of make me feel a little uncomfortable. Like, it's on the ground. I don't know what to do with it. But God shows his people that he cares, that he loves, that he's going to take care of it. Jesus is pointing back and saying, look, Moses did this well. I'm going to do this great. This is also um, looking forward to the Lord's Supper. We just had the opportunity to take communion. Scripture says that he broke, gave thanks, and he took a minute and prayed. We had that opportunity. Just like uh, Mr. Houston said, this is not some mundane, trivial thing that we do. This is a time that we celebrate. We stop for a second, maybe a minute, and thank God for his sacrifice. Thank God for Jesus on the cross. Thank you for the mercy and grace that we find, and we celebrate communion. This miracle was shared and experienced by thousands. They just didn't witness God's power. They tasted, touched, smelled this miracle. Now, I don't know about you, but if you witnessed somebody walking on water, you would be taken back. Like, whoa, Jesus is walking on water. That's pretty cool. But I'm in the boat. The boat's kind of rocking. But man, he's doing it. That's great. This is a miracle that people experienced. They held it in their hand. They ate it until they were satisfied. They ate and ate until they were full. These people probably didn't have a big meal for a long time. These people smelled this miracle. They tasted this wonder. They were completely, century, just like, connected to this. This is one of those miracles that we look at and say thousands of people experience. Not even just witnessed, but experienced. Luke is writing the story down to draw the reader in and answers the question that was asked by Herod, by the disciples, by even the crowds in Jesus' family. Who is Jesus. Luke points to Jesus uh, much more, uh, points to Jesus much more than a prophet. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. There's a few things that happen in between the feeding of the multitude, the feeding of 5,000s, and kind of the next thing that happened. This is G, uh, Jesus asked the question, Peter responds. But in Luke, there's kind of nothing there. Uh, but in others, uh, the synoptic gospels, we see uh, maybe a few months have passed. But Luke is really painting the picture of this is the big deal. This is what we wanted to get across. So Luke says this in Luke 9, 18 through 19. Once then, Jesus was praying in, a private, in private, and his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that you were prophet uh, or one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Again, they point to these three options, but Jesus takes it to the next level. He asks his friends, who do others say I am? And it was the same response. So now he looks at his disciples and he asks the really hard question that I'm asking you this morning, that I'm asking myself this morning. Jesus says in Luke 9:20, but what about you? Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And I can imagine some awkward silence. I don't know if they're hanging around a fire pit, uh, cooking fish. I don't know what's going on. But I can imagine these, these men, these women that were following Jesus probably didn't know exactly what to say because there was confusion. There was confusion all around them. And then all of a sudden, Peter steps up to the plate. Now, Peter... You know anything about Peter? He's kind of a loud mouth, and I would imagine ADHD is one of his things, and he kind of comes off hack cock, and unfortunately, that's why I like him so much. <laughs> kind of one of those guys I can relate to. Uh, but the reality is, is Peter steps up big. He stands up and says, Peter answers, you are the Christ of God. A better translation might be that you are the Messiah of God. Jesus is the long-awaited, 
promised one who is to usher in the restored kingdom. Peter says this, you're not a good man. You are not a prophet. You are not Elijah. You are not John the Baptist. You aren't any of that. You are my Savior. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen way for God to reconnect with his people. Jesus says, now Peter, this really wasn't on your head. You didn't figure this out. God gave that to you. And I get that. I get that. But can you imagine that moment when Peter connects the dots? That he's been hanging out with Jesus for a while now, seeing these amazing things. That he's been discipled. He's been given the Holy Spirit to go out and do amazing things. And he sits down and he says, that's right. He's, He's our Savior. He's going to save us. He's going to protect us. He is bringing us back to God. Peter makes this amazing confession that we all look at and say, that's a game changer for Peter, for those disciples, for us. Clearly, Scripture points out to us who Jesus is. He is our Savior. A good man, a nice guy, even a prophet of God. It's all well and good. But Peter screams this here. Luke, throughout this entire dialogue, is basically telling us, you want to know who Jesus is? I'm going to use the feeding of the multitude to show you guys that he is an amazing answer for hundreds and hundreds of years for Israelites and for us. This connection we need with God comes in Jesus' form. The feeding of the 5,000 was Peter's game changer. Scripture says that Jesus is the Messiah, God in flesh, but many people are still asking the question, who is Jesus? Today, thousands of years later, we still have people asking, maybe, maybe you are asking that question, who is Jesus? Um, in college, I became a believer. Uh, long story short, uh, I became a believer of Christ, as in historically he probably existed. Um, he's kind of a big deal. But in college, I was working through my salvation. I was working through who, what, where, when is Jesus. And, and whatever that answer is, how is it going to reflect and change my life? C.S. Lewis, pretty, uh, pretty famous author. Um, and one of these quotes really just grabbed my heart back then. Let me tell it to you. You might have heard this before, but it's amazing. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, is the son of God, or else a madman or something even worse. You, can't, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with a patronizing nonsense about um, his being a great human teacher or a nice man. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And that really stirred my heart. A liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Now, I've met some liars in my life. I've been a liar in my life, looking for approval, looking for popularity. People lie for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes we're afraid. Sometimes we're just trying to get the attention of some girl. I see Jesus. I can't possibly fathom the lie. I just can't possibly fathom it. A lunatic or a madman, 
he claimed he was God. Have you ever made a friend that claimed he was God? Have you ever ran into somebody who claimed, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm God, I'm divinity, I'm a big deal. It's a difficult conversation. It's a hard friendship. Jesus was either a liar, a madman, or exactly what Scripture points him to be. Exactly what Jesus says out of his own mouth. Exactly what Luke has been trying to tell people for thousands of years. That Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our only way for redemption. Our only salvation. God gave us Jesus because he loved us before we knew him. Before some silly eight-year-old riding on a bike in circles saying, hey, who are you? He loved me. Through Jesus Christ, I don't know why, but he loves me. Clive tells us we have a choice, believing Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. And that's my question for you guys. As Jesus looked at the disciples and said, who do you think I am? I'm going to ask you this as you walk out of here. Who do you think Jesus is? I'm going out on a limb here and guessing that your lifestyle reflects your belief in whom Jesus is. My lifestyle reflects truly who I think Jesus is. How you and I forgive others, how we love others, how we serve others, how we give in this world, how we worship might help us see a clearer picture, see a clearer picture of what we truly believe Jesus is. When we come to the understanding that he is Savior, our life ultimately changes. So, it's time. We normally, at this time, say, you can do it, we can help. We pray for you guys, and if you invite, you invite you down here if you want to have a conversation. This is a big, giant church, and sometimes that's intimidating. I get it. Not everybody wants to be the center of attention, but here it is. Here's my challenge. Here's my, here's my prayer and my desire for you. If you've been a churchgoer for a long time, if you are asking the question who Jesus is and you haven't made that choice up yet, if you're on the fence and you need a conversation, if you need somebody to pray with you, you can come down here. After everything is done, you can find one of us. Find a corner. We would be honored to pray with you, to talk to you, to help you in whatever next step in your faith with Jesus Christ might be. Alan's normally in the middle of the hallway. You, you, can't, you can't get away from us. That's what we're here for. Sherwood Oaks isn't here to, big, uh, to build big buildings or have such a great reputation in, in Bloomington. We're here to honor and worship Jesus Christ. We are here to honor God that loves us so very much, and we would be elated to have a conversation with you. So if you want to, I'm going to pray. Come down. If you're brave enough, I'll high-five you. But if not, it's okay. Don't let this opportunity slip by. If you haven't made Jesus Lord yet, if you haven't stood up and said, you know what? He is my salvation. He is love and forgiveness and grace wrapped up in a hug. Please come talk to somebody.